Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am FACT's Vice President of Community Relations. Today we are discussing real food allergy life and eating disorders and disordered eating with food allergies. We're sitting down with Emery Brown, FACT's Director of Behavioral Health, to take a deeper dive into this topic. Before we start today, I just want to take a moment and thank the National Peanut Board for their kind sponsorship of today's show and for all of their support over the years. Welcome, Emery. It is always enlightening and exciting to host you on the Facts Roundtable podcast. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be back. Let's dive right in with you helping us understand what the difference is between an eating disorder and disordered eating with food allergies. Many of us are familiar with the eating disorders, but I admit I've never heard of disordered eating. Absolutely. And I'm glad you haven't heard of it because that might allude to the fact that it hasn't been an issue in your life, which is fantastic. But also perhaps it's something that we can point you and others to knowing a little bit more about so that when it does come up in our life, our children's lives, our friend's life, we can be a little bit more ready to recognize it and help the people that we love get help. So first, I'm going to give a definition for eating disorders right from the National Institute of Health or the NIH. And eating disorders are a serious and often fatal illness that are associated with severe disturbances in people's eating behaviors and related thoughts and emotions. It includes preoccupation with food, body weight, and shape, and all of those kind of issues, those preoccupations can signal an eating disorder. And common eating disorders include anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Disordered eating, on the other hand, disordered eating is a disturbed and unhealthy eating pattern that can include restrictive dieting, compulsive eating, or skipping meals. So for some people, disordered eating can actually be a precursor to a full-fledged eating disorder, while other people just might have these disordered eating patterns where they eat when they're bored or they are very rigid about the things that they eat. They have to pack the same thing for lunch every day. Or perhaps they even cut out a made food group like, I just don't eat carbs. And in the society we live in, in the culture that we live in, some people can quote unquote make this work because it's commonplace. It's the societal standards. It's the pressure and the preoccupation with weight loss and exercise in our culture. And this can lead a lot of individuals to start to alter and manipulate their food intake to a point where it's disordered eating. Disordered eating is still a problem, but there's a difference that it's not this full-fledged eating disorder um, that, like I said, is extremely serious, can be deadly, and starts to get in the way of every function of everyday life. So not only does an eating disorder have the obsession that people with a disordered eating pattern might have, but eating disorders are also going to have an impaired functionality where the function of their day-to-day life can't happen anymore because of the severity of the eating disorder. Now, on the flip side, apart from eating disorders and apart from disordered eating, we also have normalized non-disordered eating. 
And I just want to be clear about that definition moving forward so we know what sort of strays away from the norm. So a non-disordered eating, or again, a normalized eating pattern, is someone that can mindfully consume their food when hungry and is able to stop when full. And in, in addition to that, they incorporate a variety into their diet. So they're not going to be somebody that's strict or rigid or cutting out certain food groups, maybe fasting in different ways. Uh, they're going to have that variety and they're going to be able to have that mindful stop and start. You just mentioned that eating disorders and disordered eating can be dangerous. Can you dive a little deeper into what you mean by that? Absolutely. Today we're talking about a heavy topic because of the fact that this is a very dangerous mental health issue or illness, as well as deadly, like I previously mentioned. We've talked about a lot of different heavy things, such as anxiety and depression on this podcast, but this is really important to hit on because anorexia is the third most common chronic illness among adolescents after asthma and obesity. In addition, anorexia specifically, we did touch that there's three main types of eating disorders, which are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. But anorexia specifically is the most deadly mental health issue, mental health illness that there is, and has the highest mortality rate among mental health illnesses, which means there's the highest number of deaths for people that have that illness. And one in five people that are going to die of anorexia are going to die by suicide. So this is a very serious topic. The rate of children under 12 being admitted to the hospital for an eating disorder rose 119% over the past decade. So this is a really serious thing. And lastly, I'll touch upon why it may be hypothesized to be so deadly. Over 70% of those who suffer with an eating disorder will not seek treatment. And that is mostly because of the heavy stigma that's on different people with these different types of eating disorders. So now what does treatment look like? Treatment will look like, depending on the severity, either seeking a mental health professional, perhaps using psychotherapy with a clinician that's well-versed and is an expert in the field of treating somebody with different eating disorders, or potentially, and this is in the most extreme instances, an inpatient facility that's going to be able to treat the mind, but also treat the damage that has potentially been done to the body as well. Thank you. Very, very interesting and very important to share that kind of data. What are the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder? An eating disorder is going to have a plethora of different signs and symptoms because of the different categories that there are for eating disorders. So again, if you've been following along with this podcast, you've now heard me say several times that the main eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And they're all very different. So for instance, a sign and symptom of somebody that might have bulimia nervosa is going to be self-induced vomiting, whereas someone that has binge eating disorder, you're going to be looking out for binge eating. Anorexia, someone with that might be fasting or skipping meals. Then all of them sorted together might have a preoccupation with appearance, a physical appearance, or preoccupation with food in a way that negatively affects quality of life. Restrictive eating, food avoidance or avoiding certain categories of foods, such as my example priorly was carbs, maybe sugar is another example, misusing laxatives or misusing or abusing diet pills, anxiety around certain foods. We've talked about anxiety a lot on this podcast, overuse of exercising to make up for what they ate. And again, this is going to be in all these signs and symptoms are going to be in a way that impairs functionality. Maybe a person with the signs and symptoms isn't hanging out with friends as much anymore because if they go out to dinner, then they're not going to have time to exercise for the second time that day. Or they accept an invitation to lunch 
and it's not at a restaurant where they might be able to order a salad or not order something, then they're going to skip that. So there's that functionality piece too, where they're no longer able to do the day-to-day things that someone without an eating disorder might be doing, as well as they're going to have that obsessive component where it's, it's not just an interest in healthy eating. A lot of people like healthy eating, right? A lot of people like quinoa and kale. There's nothing inherently wrong about that, but it's going to be an obsession. Maybe they're obsessively tracking calories. Maybe they're obsessively reading labels to, to look at the health ingredients, to look at the fat, to look at the calories. Maybe they're obsessively weighing themselves one, two, three, eight times a day. So this is going to be the functionality and obsession. or They're going to be a key role in whether or not this is an eating disorder or disordered eating it's that extreme obsession and functionality that play a part as well. Thank you. That was very detailed. I appreciate that. So now let's move over and discuss the signs and symptoms of disordered eating. Great. So that's really important because hopefully for those that are tuning into the podcast, if they are noticing something, hopefully it's at a place of disordered eating where we can catch it early before it becomes a full-fledged eating disorder. And later in the podcast, we're also going to get into some preventative strategies prevention tip so that you and your child, you can work on these things before they ever have an eating disorder or disordered eating patterns, because there's a lot of different things that we can do to help, which is really important to say before I overwhelm you with more things that are problematic to look out for. But someone with disordered eating is going to base their self-worth highly or even exclusively on their body shape or weight. There's probably a disturbance in the way they're experiencing their their body It could be like a person that falls in a healthy weight range but continues to feel that they're overweight. Someone with disordered eating may have that excessive or rigid exercise routine as well. And again, someone with disordered eating might also obsessive calorie count. So these are just beginning signs. They can kind of overlap. Anxiety about certain food or food groups is also going to be a symptom and sign of disordered eating. And a rigid approach, which we mentioned earlier, such as only eating a certain food, inflexible with meal times, maybe somebody that has really taken up to intermittent fasting, that could be a precursor to an eating disorder. Now, a lot of people do subscribe to intermittent fasting, and if you're doing it in a, in a healthy way, that's fantastic. But restricting eating to a small window can be a problem for other people that are going to be more prone to eventually developing eating disorders. Those are a couple clues that you can start to look out for if you're noticing that somebody's regular normalized eating is starting to take a different turn, like healthy eating or healthy exercising, but a little bit too far. That is amazing. Thank you so much. Very, very actionable data. I appreciate that. So now how may food allergies and disordered eating tie into each other? Great. This is the question of the day, the question of the podcast. We're here because there's a tie into food allergies. Now, the prevalence of eating disorders among people with food allergies isn't currently known. However, there's been some studies that have suggested a connection. And this kind of makes sense when you think about the fact that a lot of teens and children and even adults with food allergies have anxiety surrounding food. By nature, somebody with a food allergy is already restricting their food intake. They're restricting certain categories. For instance, myself, I'm allergic to dairy, peanuts, fish, and some seeds. I restrict those foods. I don't eat them. I can't eat them, right? Because I could have an allergic reaction. Now, that's safe. That's important. So that's different because people with food allergies need to restrict these foods. But because we are taught to restrict foods more than a non-allergic peer, this could eventually be problematic because of the increased anxiety that's going to surround different foods and also the increased stress. So people with food allergies might already have a disrupted relationship with food. We're raised to read labels with scrutiny 
were raised to, to look at the different factors of the labels. A lot of people don't learn how to read a food label until high school health class, or maybe never. I've met adults in my life, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast that have met adults in their life that don't know how to properly read a label. But part of having a food allergy and being in a family with people with food allergies is that's something that you know how to do. But when you know how to do this, this again can turn into looking at the calories more deeply than somebody else, looking at the fats more differently than somebody else. And again, not inherently bad because choosing things that are healthy is important, but it's, are we going to take it to that extreme because we already have that disrupted relationship with food? So for people with food allergies and food-related anxieties, this could trigger disordered eating behaviors such as the restriction or such as avoidance. And avoidance behaviors, as we've talked about in podcasts past, can eventually result in social isolation. And again, checking behaviors. We talked about obsession a little bit earlier. We are taught to check labels several times. In my family, we always had the triple check rule. You're going to triple check the labels. I'm sure some of you guys out there might do a double check, a triple check, something like that. Even to this day in my family, we just say, got a triple check. So different things like that, but we're taught to be repetitive in our checking, but this can become an obsession and the obsession can lead to disordered eating. So it's important that when you're raising food allergic children, that you're not taking safe practices too far that can allow a food allergic individual to hide disordered eating habits under the guise of safety. It's important to note that some people might even, on the flip side, while anxiety related to food allergies could trigger disordered eating because the person already has obsessive habits and restrictive eating based on their food allergies. On the flip side, somebody that has developed an eating disorder based on maybe poor self-image or poor body perception of themselves, they can actually use their food allergies to hide their eating disorder or to hide their disordered eating habits. Because I'm sure for those of you that have children, they told you they didn't feel safe going to a restaurant, you wouldn't think twice. That would be that. You might not go to that restaurant. But when we think of it in the vein that this could also be hiding disordered eating, they didn't want to go to the restaurant because they don't want to eat. And they're saying that they're going to eat in their room alone that night, but they're actually going to throw out their food. For someone with food allergies, they could use their food allergies as a way to mask disordered eating habits or an eating disorder. So that's just important to note too, that again, while we don't know the exact prevalence of eating disorders among people with food allergies, there's that natural tie-in due to anxiety, checking rituals, and restriction. And on the flip side, someone that might be genetically prone to having an eating disorder because about all eating disorders, 50 to 80% of those cases are genetic. So if you know that eating disorders might run in your family, your children, your nieces, your nephews, they all might have a higher likelihood of developing an eating disorder. And if they have food allergies in addition to that, it might be used to cover the fact that they do have an eating disorder or a disordered eating pattern. So that's just something to note in your head as well. So now based on everything you just shared with us, what can a person do if they suspect they themselves or their child has an eating disorder or disordered eating? And I would say they need to seek medical attention and specifically a mental health clinician specializing in eating disorders. And again, like I said, an eating disorder has a high fatality rate. It's a very serious thing. So depending on how far the suspicion is along, you might need to seek medical attention. But if it's in the early stages, then I would absolutely seek counseling. I would sit down with your child and have an open discussion. Again, it might be hard. And a lot of people with eating disorders tend to manipulate the situation or potentially lie because remember, they're lying about their different restrictive habits and what they're eating and what they're not eating. But on the flip side, somebody that 
hasn't a disordered eating pattern born out of anxiety or even food allergy related anxiety, and they have this anxiety around certain food groups, they might want this open dialogue because it might be something that they really want to overcome and they're super ready to have that help. So again, we've been hammering it down in all our podcasts, but in our, within our family units, within um, our marriages, within our child, child parent relationships, if you're a single parent, whatever it may be, we can't be afraid of hard conversations and we can't be afraid of emotions or different mental health issues because across the spectrum of life, it's likely that it's going to come up. And we don't want to be the one that's afraid to have the conversation and prevent someone from getting help or we're the only avenue that someone can seek help through. We want to be an open avenue where traffic can freely flow. So have that conversation with your child. Don't be afraid to have it. And again, model good behavior. We're going to get into it in a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about prevention, but your parent listening to this podcast, the behavior that you model around eating the language that you use around eating is going to greatly affect your child. And that's something to be mindful of. Thank you for such powerful recommendations. So you just mentioned prevention. So let's explore what your thoughts are on how to prevent this and what actions we can take. Great. So the first action is just going to be modeling. As a parent, stop negative body talk. Be mindful of when you're being overly critical about yourself or you're talking down about yourself or your body. Plenty of times I go over homes and I hear and see parents say something like, I'm so fat, like I should never have worn this, or I'm so fat, I can't eat another bite. When we use that kind of language around our children, they think that's acceptable language to use around ourselves. And especially people with healthy bodies even say these kinds of things. And it makes our children think that there's a certain way to be or that maybe they don't look good if their mom doesn't like how they look or their dad doesn't like how they look. Avoiding fat or crash diets is going to be really important. So don't encourage your children into fat diets or crash diets. And in general, if that's something that you're a part of, that might be something that you want to avoid as well. Set healthy limits within your home on exercising and focus on healthy activities that are enjoyable. Perhaps, again, for somebody that might have obsessive exercising, preferable to take a yoga class instead of going to the gym and staying on the elliptical machine until you burn X amount of calories. You want to be involved in free-flowing exercise that is more about strengthening your body, keeping your body healthy, keeping your body happy, keeping your body energized, rather than looking for a certain amount of minutes or a certain amount of calories burned for it to be a successful exercise. Uh, throw away the scale, right? Um, now, again, that might not work for some people, might work for other people, but people with disordered eating often weigh themselves daily or multiple times a day. You might want to be thinking about getting rid of that scale. Additionally, you want to help your child build confidence. And this is probably going to be the biggest one. We have a resiliency kit online on our website that you can download for free to help your child learn better how to bounce back. There's self-affirmations in that. Building up confidence in your child about how they look, how they are, what their talents are, what they're capable of is going to be really preventative from not only eating disorders, but a lot of mental health issues. Having strong resilience and having high confidence is a game changer. And not only just in confidence in themselves, help your child build confidence in their allergy management. There was a study done in 2018 that showed that young people were more likely to have eating disorders or unhealthy restrictive eating habits if they were not confident in food allergy related issues. So teach them self-advocacy, teach them independence, start letting them have little bits of independence if your child's in middle school and especially high school, because they're going to be an adult soon and they're going to need that and that's going to help them in the long run. 
So I want everyone's takeaway is that having a food allergy, you're not doomed to disordered eating patterns because you have restrictions in your diet. Absolutely not. But we do need to be wary about the way we talk about our body, the way that we eat inside of our home, the way that we portray exercising, because this is going to influence our children. And then my last thing that I'd like to talk about that's an issue in today's society is if your child is on TikTok, if they're on Instagram, if they're on Snapchat, your children need to be talked to about filters. They need to be talked to about editing software. You need to sit down with your child and show them, hey, this is what somebody looks like with a filter. This is what they don't look like with a filter. Filters aren't real. You know, I've used filters too. So I'm not trying to come out anybody that's using social media or these enjoyable filters that change the color of your eye or make you into a butterfly or all these different things. But it does distort reality. And they're showing that people are becoming less and less satisfied with their appearance because when they look at themselves in the mirror and they don't have this filter on that has smoothed their skin, lightened their eyes, got rid of any blemishes, they aren't liking what they're seeing because it's not what they're seeing on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, the fake persona that they've made of themselves. So especially young girls and boys need to know that a lot of different things are edited because if they're on these apps chasing the ideal body, Sometimes the people that have these ideal bodies don't even have these ideal bodies because they're using editing software and they're using face filters as well. So with the growing adolescence, that's going to be a big conversation that you're going to want to have in your household too. And it's not to say don't have social media. It's to say be candid and open about the conversations surrounding social media and making sure that as many family photos that you're taking on a selfie with a filter, you're going to take some without a filter too, because that's really where the beauty shines. Thank you for bringing up social media, because I think it is so easy to forget that when you see this beautiful photo and there's this beautiful meal laid out with this person looking perfect right next to it, that this has been staged. I mean, someone just did not whip out their phone and take this photo. This was worked at and we forget that. And I really agree. And thank you so much for sharing that we should speak to our children about this because it's so easy to forget 100%. So now before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like our listeners to hear today? This has just been such a tremendous session of information because this is our world and these are our realities. Yeah, that's great. I just want the listeners to take away that there is always hope. I think that after these kind of heavy podcasts that really talk about potential issues that somebody with food allergies might face in the realm of mental health, that there is hope. It's not a sentence or an assurity that these things will happen, but we want to be cognizant about them so that if it was ever to come along, perhaps we can prevent it before it ever does. And if it is something that you're facing right now at home, that there's hope and more importantly, there's help and it's available to you. Well, thank you, Emery, again. Always, always, always big thanks to you. You always bring us such great information that we need to hear and you present it in such a warm, loving way. I just absolutely appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time. And I know we'll be speaking again soon. Thank you, Caroline. Talk to you soon. Before we say goodbye, I just want to take a moment to say thank you once again to the National Peanut Board for sponsoring today's highly informative show. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.